0: Well, guys, I received another missive from beyond from Alan Rosenstein. As I guess, I messed up. He has not up The last missive. When
1: you say from beyond, <laughs> we covered He's this last time. He's dead to us.
0: To us, <laughs> for the next several weeks, he might as well be dead. Uh, beyond the scope of this podcast, evidently, I said that he said that the Mac OS is based in Linux. What he actually said. But he didn't pronunciate, So I had a problem with that, is that it's based in Unix. And I guess that justifies his decision to switch to Mac OS? So
2: you, you can all stop emailing Alan now complaining yeah. about his inaccurate description.
1: Apparently, he's received a very large number of angry notes from listeners who are upset at his tech illiteracy. And it's not his tech illiteracy; it's uh, Scott's. That's that's exactly
0: that's exactly right. Um, it t- t- took me a while to figure out he meant Unix, U N I X, and not Unix, E U N U C H S, which triggered a little bit of alarm on my part for a few minutes there. These poor castrato uh, marching around, <laughs> uh, but I googled it and figured it out, and uh, now I understand what he's talking about. So my apologies to the listeners to the country (laughs) for (laughs) this transgression. To the Linux community? To the Linux, the broader Linux community. My my Linux brothers and sisters, I have no fear, Alan remains... Well, not in your camp. Still, he did switch to Mac, uh, but uh, I guess for Unix reasons—again, uh, the U, not the E—he's okay with that. He's cool with you guys.
2: And Scott, Scott is—he's apologizing, and he is committed to doing the work.
0: I will, I will do the work to listen more carefully to Alan's <laughs> poor explanations next time. So definitely me, not on Alan. And hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be back in the IRL studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello, and we are, once again, absent to the dearly departed Alan Rosenstein for a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> not this Don't makes it sound folks. like
2: when he comes back, he's going to be a zombie.
0: Well, you know, we'll see how he's doing. How we'll see how he's doing. We'll see how much <laughs> sleep he gets. Yeah, exactly. Maybe closer to that than not. And we are thrilled to be joined by none other than, of course, Rational Security co-host emeritus Benjamin Wittes. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we got to make that a ringtone, I think, uh, <laughs> available. It's a special Patreon perk is the ringtone because uh, it's just so snazzy. Uh, ben, thrilled to have you back with us this week. It's great to be back. It's um, actually been surprisingly long since we've had you on. I yeah, realize I come whenever you invite
1: me. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's not like you know I'm far away or anything.
0: Well, again we tore down we tore down the monuments your your reign never existed here in national security right. so you're just a guest now and
1: that's great but we're thrilled to have you here as a guest i'm the i'm the 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 lenin statue of 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 rational security yeah,
2: there are statues of ben's decapitated head just in piled in the corner of yeah, exactly. the rational security studio it's like all
0: the all the confederate statues it's being repurposed for modern art somewhere in in in, in a blue city in the south
1: yeah I, Look, whatever they want, whatever you guys want to do with the Widdish statues, as long as they wear dog shirts.
0: <laughs> you are not even wearing a dog shirt. You're wearing a, a, an aggressively orange emu shirt, I believe, or some sort of large it's, bird anyway.
1: It's very orange. Not all days are dog shirt days. There are occasional yeah. emu shirt days, and this is one of them.
0: Where is, where is that substack? <laughs> not all <laughs> days are
1: dog days. Dog
0: shirt days edition. Um, well, regardless, whatever animal may be blazing your chest, uh, Ben, we are thrilled to have you here for what we are calling the based in Unix edition <laughs> in honor of our colleague Alan and his uh, rest computer choices. Peace. May he rest in peace. We, of course, have had a big week in national security news. We don't really have any small weeks in national security news, but this has been a particularly big week. Lots of stories, more than we had time to talk about. We picked three big ones, all of which are up your alley, Ben, and we're thrilled to have you here for them.
1: I'm excited about it.
0: It'll be good. For our first topic – Stalled and appalled, Ukraine's counteroffensive to try and reclaim Russian-held parts of eastern Ukraine appears to have stalled, triggering a degree of finger-pointing on both sides of the Atlantic, just as U.S. and European support for the Ukrainians' military campaign may be waning. What does this mean for the next stage of this conflict? Topic two, parting the Red Sea. Since the start of the war in Gaza, U.S. and allied diplomatic and military presences have come under attack by Iran-backed praxis throughout the Middle East. Now, the Iran-backed Houthi faction in Yemen is targeting commercial shipping in the Red Sea. That purportedly has Israeli ties of some sort or another, uh, although not really. What's motivating these actions and how do they change the regional security picture? And topic three – one day soon, I'm going to tell my goons about the blessing game. Anybody? Ooh, good. So I, Boy yeah, very- that was for you, Ben. I thought you would get this. Scott just wanted to sing. I just wanted to sing a little bit. I love how I sound on these microphones. <laughs> it's the one <laughs> redeeming factor uh, of my of my singing voice on these microphones. Former President Do- – that was from The Crying Game for anybody who didn't know. Classic <laughs> movie, classic song. Boy George. Uh, former President Donald Trump suffered two big legal losses in cases relating to January 6th this past week as both the D.C. Circuit in the civil suit against him and the trial court in his criminal prosecution held that he was not immune from prosecution by virtue of being the president. What will these decisions mean moving forward on the civil and criminal fronts? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started.
2: The Washington Post uh, recently came out with a big and quite impressively reported two-part piece about uh, what it's calling Ukraine's failed counteroffensive. Um, I think the the top line here is that this is based on a lot, like a lot of interviews, both named and anonymous with both U.S. and Ukraine, Ukrainian officials. It depicts how tensions have kind of risen between the U.S. and Ukraine as the counteroffensive has kind of floundered and it seems like ground to somewhat of a stalemate uh, without Ukraine making major advances in recent months. So we have disagreements between the U.S. and Ukraine over strategy, questions about uh, when and where to begin the offensive that seem to have delayed it several months, questions about the ability of Ukrainian forces to carry out this operation, which may have been magnified by sort of a perhaps lack of complete comprehension on the part of the U.S. about Ukrainian military capabilities and just about the sort of terrain and political and strategic environment. I have to say... I came away from this feeling pretty grim about the prospects for Ukraine going forward. It is not a happy story. Ben, I want to turn to you first, since you're, you've you been watching this, I think, the most closely. What do you make of this reporting, both in terms of what it depicts about the apparent tensions between the U.S. and Ukraine and what it tells us about the counteroffensive?
1: All right. So first of all, the story uh, or the pair of stories is really very impressively reported. Uh, the first is a examination of the tensions and disagreements that led up to the advent of the, the counteroffensive last spring. And the second is a kind of uh, nitty-gritty account of how the counteroffensive did not produce – the breakthrough that was hoped for by all parties and uh, very much expected by some look I think the the fundamental explanation for this is that success has a thousand parents and uh, failure is an orphan and so if you're uh, you know you're looking at a Military counteroffensive that has not produced substantial results yet has been very costly in terms of U.S. money and weaponry and Ukrainian blood and uh, that gives rise to a really profound Ukrainian anxiety, which is about the inability to retake territory that was lost to Russia in both in 2014 and in the first uh, months of this conflict, uh, which, of course, Ukrainians see as one conflict uh, that dates from 2014. And so at stake is really, from their point of view, the territorial integrity of the country. And from the American point of view, uh, what's at stake is the Uh, sort of the integrity of the investment that we have made as a society in the Ukrainian fighting capability and the ability to deal Russia a major strategic defeat without the use of US forces. So I I do want to say that I think the uh, reporting is for exactly this reason a little bit overstated. Not that the reporting is inaccurate or anything. But if you if you ask people at a point in which the – you know, something has gone less well than expected, why did it go less well than expected, please reflect on your interactions with the Americans or your interactions with the Ukrainians. Uh, There's a very natural tendency to – if you're an American policymaker or an American military strategist who advised the Ukrainians to conduct their operations differently than they did, you know, we told them you needed a major mechanized push through at one point and you're going to lose a lot of people but get through, punch through and go to the sea and just don't spread out your forces, don't blah, blah, blah. And of course, you look back on it and you say, well, I was right. And if they'd just listened to me, everything would be fine. And similarly, if you're Ukrainian, you say, we told them we needed air power. We told them we needed long-range missiles. We told them uh, we needed it all faster and they – and look what happened without it. And so it does create a situation – the nature of failure creates a situation in which – everybody looks back on these disputes, which were real and are, by the way, exactly the kind of dispute that, you know, Ukraine and the United States should be having. They're strategic and tactical questions about how best to defeat a major land power, right? And it goes back and it it creates a kind of bitterness associated with these disputes. Whereas if the counteroffensive had been more effective, I think we would – All be looking back on it with a little bit more charity for the uh, positions of the other side. I guess the last broad point that I will make is that all of this, you know, we're having this conversation the week in which Congress is considering what is these are the lobes of the Venn diagram which don't overlap, where the Ukrainians have one position and the Americans have one position. A different position, but the what's before Congress right now is the area w- which still does overlap uh, between the policymakers of both countries, which is the question of whether we should continue to be supporting Ukraine in a significant way at all, and ironically, not for any reason discussed in the Washington Post that is the big issue on the table right now and so and the 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 irony is that had the counteroffensive been more effective, I don't think Congress would be quite as reticent about a major new investment package in Ukraine. Uh, And so, I do think the consequences of this, uh, particularly if the administration is unable to get this through Congress, are you know really quite dire. And you know the post story for that reason is a difficult read. There's a relationship between the failure of the counteroffensive and the difficulty uh, for the administration of getting what is really a very reasonable continuation of what had been a bipartisan foreign policy initiative through Congress this year.
2: Do you think the counteroffensive has failed?
1: So failed is a a funny word. The line – has been – between Ukrainian and Russian forces has been relatively static for a good long time. Nobody expected it to be quite this static. At least nobody on the Ukrainian or American side expected it to be quite this static at the time it launched in the spring. And in that sense, if if the goal was major gains, then yes, absolutely it has failed. It's not entirely over yet and people assume that once the ground freezes, it, the fighting season is going to stop and I don't believe that's true actually. that That's an import of our idea of fighting in Afghanistan where there really is a fighting season um, and to Ukraine uh, where … Ironically, people say, you know, you can't fight in the winter because it's frozen and you can't fight in the spring because it thaws and then it's all muddy. Actually, they fight in both. And so, you know, I I don't think the, you know, oh, it's getting cold there. They're going to stop for the winter. Remember February 22nd, the invasion itself? That was in the middle of the winter. And so I I think – It didn't go that well though. (laughs) No, it went really well for the Ukrainians. They, they, they managed to, to, to fight just fine. So I, I guess I think that the it has certainly failed for now. Even uh, uh, General Zelensky, the uh, Ukrainian commander, has uh, written wrote a long article about how they were in a different environment in which they were going to be, you know, fighting for meters rather than for uh, kilometers. And so, in that sense, it has failed a war is not a single offensive or a battle, you know. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, we learn, armies learn and adapt from each other's performances. And the Russians, you know, were quite a miserable fighting force for the first year of this war. And then their adaptation over the course of last winter uh, into this past spring uh, was relatively impressive. And so – I I don't think we should assume that because the particular counteroffensive has failed in the short term that that means we are in – people love the word stalemate. But a stalemate is when you have no move to get out of the current morass, right? And I don't know that to be true at all.
0: I, I agree with just about everything Ben just said. But the one thing I think to bear in mind is that part of the stalling we're seeing here is really because of material facts on the ground that are immobile and hard to change. And that is the fortifications that Russia has been building and and Ukraine to some extent, but particularly Russia has been building for an extensive period now. Um, I did a phenomenal interview with The Economist's lead defense reporter on this. Shashank Joshi, I think two months ago, um, based off a phenomenal special report he put together in The Economist about all the new methods and technologies of warfare we've seen come out in the Ukraine conflict, but a point he really hit on really hard and that has really come to the fore is this reality of trench warfare and just how impenetrable it is. It's not just that you have trenches, like we've had trenches since World War I and well before, right? And We knew how difficult they were, but we had ways to get past them. Ways you get used to get past them was armor and artillery, both of which you have very effective countermeasures against now. You know you have very specifically targeted first-person directed drones that can be used to take out tank treads and you know immobilize armor, and then you have all of a sudden infantry troops are trying to break through these fortifications. It is a really really hard slog when you're dealing with a dug-in enemy, and Russia. To some extent to its credit, when it pivoted strategically away from taking Ukraine as a whole towards holding this eastern domain, which is a loss on Russia's part. We shouldn't lose sight of that, a big loss. This is not what they came into this war wanting. They could have gotten this heck of a lot cheaper than what they ended up paying for it if they ended up holding it. But Nonetheless, they pivoted strategically to this dig in, hold the land strategy – and they have had months to prepare for it. Maybe they could have had less. Maybe it would have made a difference. Maybe it wouldn't. Worth noting, you know, while some Americans thought this hit the line at one spot strategy, had a chance of success, the intelligence community thought it was at best 50-50 and was skeptical of the US intelligence community from the outset. Um, so really, even in the US side, there was disagreements about this. You know, I think the real challenge here, as Ben's noted, is that it, this undermines solidarity among American and European supporters because it looks like the return on investment um, might not be there, and you already were going to have war fatigue kicking in, and the political dynamics in the United States around this were always going to be toxic. One of my worst uh, predictions that I'm sad came true, but you know, we knew a year and a half ago this is exactly the dynamic that was going to come around Ukrainian assistance as the election got close, and it's manifesting in spades. Um, and we talked about it at length on this podcast and elsewhere. You've got this narrowing window. It's also going to have that effect on the Ukrainians. Like one of the Ukrainians' greatest uh, strengths has been morale and solidarity. And we're seeing a reemergence of competitive politics in Ukraine, of internal dissension uh, and a failure like this, which I think is a policy failure. We have to reconcile with that. doesn't mean the whole campaign's lost, but this was a objective that was not achieved at, in the way people thought it was going to be, is feeding into that. Uh, so far as Zelensky, at least as far as I can tell, seems like – largely above it but maybe not forever uh, and Ukrainian politics are messy and dangerous and difficult um, and if they really come back to the fore, that could be a problem and a complicating factor for a lot of things including relationships with the EU and the West because there are a lot of Ukrainian policies, Ukrainian policy makers, elements of Ukrainian society that raise a lot of eyebrows and questions and concerns with the West. So you know, I think this is a moment where it behooves Ukrainians and people who support Ukrainians to take stock of what is necessary to hold what we have, and really focus on reinvesting in that—that that does, I think, means this counteroffensive is over and should end. If I'm be completely honest, doesn't mean it has to be the last one. Doesn't mean you have to concede that Russia will forever have this territory, but you're at risk of, you know, I think pushing hard enough at a measure now that you're undermining the support base you have for being able to maintain the defense of Ukraine that's still in Ukrainian hands. And that's what makes me nervous.
2: So just to, just to clarify, so what that would mean just looking at a map is basically accept that at this point in the war, Russia has control over Crimea and the Donbass.
0: Not, ex- not accepting, but accepting as a reality on the ground. Still contested, even contested by arms. But I think the idea that the measuring your success and focusing your resources on changing that on the ground is going to be very expensive militarily in the near term and comes at great risk for what you are holding now and your ability to defend that, particularly against, for example, a reinvigorated Russian offensive two years from now, three years from now, um, reinvesting in an ability to protect you know the parts of Ukraine in Ukrainian hands strikes me as a, a better investment, probably an easier sell, at least in European audiences and other places, and something that is a more achievable victory. That I, I feel like is less likely to undermine. Um, whatever political consensus exists around policy in Ukraine then very ambitious military goals for reclaiming territory.
1: Trevor Burrus And uh, let me just clarify what you're saying. Are you suggesting negotiations and a ceasefire on the basis of current lines or are you just suggesting a- allowing the current counteroffensive to run its course and focus on you know, building up for the next one or for – Reconstruction internally, what does it mean in your eyes to say, "Okay, the the counteroffensive should be brought to an end? I think the latter of what you described. I mean a a ceasefire might make sense. Maybe
0: that is the cheapest way but it would require you to have a lot more credibility and confidence in the Russians actually – ceasing fire then I think we have reason to have right now. So I think realistically like there's still going to be fighting along these lines. There's going to be drone attacks and rocket attacks and missile attacks and people losing their lives on both sides um, and that is unfortunately a reality. Probably Ukraine going to have to live with for a good while longer. But in terms of the effort to really aggressively invest a ton of resources in pushing through Russian this fortified Russian line and reclaiming that territory, I think you have to accept that might be a medium to long-term goal but not a short-term goal given the resource constraints and political dynamics around the conflict at this point.
2: So, I mean, I'm curious what you both think of this, because that, that sounds to me a little bit like one of the possibilities that I think was on the table when the war first started. I mean, I think initially, I was certainly in the camp of people who thought, you know, this is going to be a disaster, Kiev is going to fall. And that turned out to be extremely not true. And then there was this kind of question of, okay, you know, what now? We're now in this completely unanticipated world. We have to reevaluate all of our assumptions, what's going on. One of the possibilities, at least as far as I understood it, was always that this would end up being kind of a frozen conflict in the way that many of Russia's near abroad conflicts are. So, for example, South Ossetia. I don't know, Ben, if you would put the a uh, Russian seizure of Crimea in that category or not in twenty fourteen. But where well, you it was
1: frozen for, for a, a while. Few years. <laughs> right, exactly. It was it's it not was, so frozen for a It abruptly anymore. thawed. Yeah.
2: But maybe that's that is a good example because there were clear lines of who controlled what. There was also, you know, you had soldiers on either side, but there wasn't regular fighting back and forth in the same way. Is that kind of where we're headed with this? Like, is that the end game here?
1: So I want to be very careful with Scott's suggestion here, because on the one hand, I do not disagree with him. But I do think there's a point, Scott, that you're making that I want to clarify, which is I don't think you are wrong that that may be the rational and appropriate strategic judgment for the Ukrainians at this point. At the point at which you don't think you can make progress throwing uh, armor and bodies at a line, you should stop and you should rethink your strategy. I am very loath to wag my finger at the Ukrainians and tell them what they should do and I think it shouldn't be American policy to do that and that actually plays to a very uh, deep Ukrainian anxiety that we are trying to push them into negotiations with the Russians that will freeze things in place and so I I think you – just as an analytical matter, you might well be right I think it has to be the Ukrainian administration's decision that, hey, we're not making progress here. Let's focus on areas where we can make progress for now rather than a you know condition of American aid or uh, something that they feel pushed into by us. So I take
0: that point of anxiety. I don't disagree with it f- fundamentally, right? Like, look – This is part of their country and they have to set a national agenda about what they accept and what they don't accept. And I think it has not been inappropriate to put Ukraine in the driver's seat on those decisions thus far and they're always going to remain the decider ultimately on a lot of them. I also think there's a point where as an ally, to be a good ally, you have to deal with them frankly about both your assessments of the situation, which may vary but nonetheless, we have our own resources and have reason to think we're good in assessing certain things. Not always great but good. (laughs) And the political constraints and realities you have on what you can provide. And those are very real now. Um, yes, And that's a problem. Um, and it's been a foreseeable problem. Like my theory of this going in, and I think this is still basically right, is that this was the, – the counteroffensive was always a risky maneuver but was seen as a something that had to be done so that the Ukrainians would know we gave it a shot. We had an effort to reclaim our territory. No one can say we didn't do an effort but that in the end, it was timed with the window when US assistance was going to be at its greater risk, greatest risk because they knew there was going to be a big risk of that window closing and at a certain point, you had to transition to a mode where you can't just go – you know, your available resources for pursuing something like this was going to be potentially dramatically constrained. There's a reason why the counteroffensive was supposed to be over by now.
1: Yeah. Well, people say it's because of the weather. But no, I I agree with that and disagree with that. I think the the other side of that coin is that there were three previous major battles. Uh, There was the battle for Kiev, which Ukrainians won improbably in a very decisive fashion. There was the retaking of uh, territory in, in the east, uh, in, in the vicinity of, of, of Kharkiv. And then there was the uh, southern campaign, which the latter two were these kind of lightning campaigns that uh, freed up a lot of territory extremely quickly. And I think there was a belief – oh, and then the Russians kind of shredded themselves at Bakhmut – uh, which was not a strategically important thing, but did involve you know tens of thousands of, and so I, th- I think there was a genuine perception among both Americans and Ukrainians that the Russian army was teetering, and of course in the middle of this, it you know there's an insurrection within uh, you know within the uh, the, the Wagner Empire. Um, and uh, march on Moscow. And so I think there was just a perception that this thing was fragile and that uh, like you're definitely right that it was a risky maneuver, but they had a lot of reason to believe that this situation could crumble. And I think there was some optimism uh, in both Kyiv and Washington that a major push was, it was not merely to show that we'd done a major push so that we could set the conditions for a ceasefire. They thought they were going to take back a lot of territory. I think they thought they might take back a lot of territory.
0: Like I don't think people certainly it seems from this reporting, although again in hindsight 2020, the Americans had at least had big reservations about this from the outside. At least the intelligence community did. Certainly it seems like portion of the military with the strategy is ultimately pursued. Um, and it, it, look a lot of U.S. resources went into supporting yep. this counteroffensive and political capital on behalf of the Biden administration. That's the the risk calculus. I think the Biden administration was best case scenario, we retake territory, worst case scenario. We're in a politically better position where perhaps it's easier to accept that at least for the short term, the status quo is where it is and we can focus on reinvesting on securing Ukraine – parts of Ukraine that are in Ukrainian hands maybe beginning to rebuild and trying to set conditions to establish a broader geopolitical relationship ties to the EU integration with NATO, sets of security assurances, all these other parts that will have to come to actually secure those parts of Ukraine at least, if not all of Ukraine in the long term, but that are really hard to do when you're in a very hot, active shooting war with the Russians. Um, You are always going to be in a shooting war with the Russians, but one where you are like actively reclaiming territory. It's not the same as a ceasefire. It's not forcing negotiated conclusions, but it's about where you stick your resources and how you set your priorities. And that pivot was always going to have to come because the window of robust Western support for this for military operations, particularly strong counter-Russian pushing back offensive military offensive operations. Operations, yeah, exactly. Even though it's offensive within Ukraine, which isn't fair to call it entirely offensive, but you know, quote unquote, offensive past offensive the offensive against line. the line. Exactly, exactly. That window is always going to be limited, and we knew we knew the limit. The limit was the end of 2023, being in 2024, when you head into the election year, and you know, I think this pivot was coming. And It's here and it's a bitter pill to swallow and the hard part now is just getting – keeping the political consensus around and support because it's not as easy to sell domestically in Ukraine um, to allies in the West and this is the new political challenge for the Biden administration, for the Linsky administration and those who who have worked with them on this. I think they can still do it. I think there's a lot of reasons for solidarity here and in some ways it can be a more limited ask. but. It's a hard. It's a hard. It's a hard political, you know, needle to thread. So, uh, so you know, I wish them the best of luck, and, and fingers crossed it plays out.
1: Well, from one war to another, I say now, hooty, who, who do you think you're shooting? <laughs> I'm so
0: glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> Uh, I also considered doing "Me and Hootie's Down by the Schoolyard." <laughs> yeah.
1: I think we've already
2: used that. As I mean, a we might reference. Have already used that
0: one. I considered uh, using uh, "Diamonds on the Souls of Her uh, for the Paul Simon reference uh, to get a few others in there. Uh, ultimately, I opted to do only one song intro this time, for better or for worse. But we'll have opportunities to talk about the Hooties later. Hootie- for the
2: record, I will. I will not be singing over okay. the course of this one episode. day.
0: We will get to Quinta. <laughs> Alan's done it. Ben's done it. I've done it. We'll all get there eventually. Apologies, Ben. Back, back no, to you. I
1: mean from one uh, war in sort of involving U.S. forces to another, uh, U.S. warship, uh, I think the USS Carney, came under assault from Houthi drones the other day as did a number of ships on grounds that they were Israeli, which they were not. And of course, U.S. forces in Iraq have come under fire from uh, Khatib Hezbollah and other Iranian-backed forces, all of which raises the question, huh, are we getting dragged into the Gaza War? Uh, The answer to which appears to be, meh. Kind of? We're not 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 getting dragged into the Gaza War. Um, But in this very limited way that, you know, Only Scott Anderson can really understand. And so, um, Scott, what the fuck is going on?
0: Yeah. You know, this is the rare uh, credibility that comes from actually having been on the wrong side of an artillery barrage by uh, (laughs) Iran-backed militias at some point in one's life. Um, Although, frankly, not that approximately, thankfully – yeah, it is a tricky situation, but not an unfamiliar one, right? Like we've seen this happen multiple times just in the last few years. We saw it happen in you know leading up to the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq in uh, twenty eleven. Uh, Going to 2012, we saw it happen in 2018, 2019 in response to the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign um, leading up to, of course, the Soleimani uh, strike, which triggered off um, probably the most aggressive wave of these attacks in Iraq and Syria prior to this, although I actually would want to go back and check – both n- rates of fire and casualty numbers. There were more casualties then that, uh, than I'm aware of there having been recently, um, but I'm not actually sure about the volume and, and intensity of attacks. Um, but certainly, that was the other biggest period of stress around this time. And then we have this new dynamic coming in where uh, these attacks on commercial shipping. We have seen this before um, primarily in the Persian Gulf, um, not in the Red Sea uh, with IRGC forces. This was a big issue in 2019. If you remember, there's a question of who was putting mines on commercial shipping uh, going in and out of the uh, Strait of Hormuz. Now we're seeing it in the Red Sea, which in some ways is much more dangerous because the Red Sea is a much more major conduit, not just for oil, which, of course, the Persian Gulf is, um, among other things, but primarily kind of energy exports. Red Sea is a conduit of all sorts of global shipping, um, as we've seen when the Suez Canal gets blocked by a shipper and we can't get car parts for a year and a sort of other things. uh, That was a great moment. I just want to say. Yeah, exactly. You know, look, if you can set down the the canal with, uh, you know, one boat that goes sideways, what do you think you can do with a bunch of rebels with a bunch of anti-ship rockets and equipment? Which the Houthis have now by courtesy of Iran as far as we can tell but almost certainly the case. So it's a real problem. Now what does Iran do when it tries to do this? It's essentially turning up the temperature and this is what Iran does all the time. And it's not a coincidence that like these things stopped during the ceasefire in Gaza – and now they started up again, because it's Iran trying to give incentives to primarily the United States, to some extent other regional actors, but really other regional actors mostly through the United States. To some extent, Europe, because often Europe ends up just getting targeted in these things, um, because of shipping interests and things like that. And you know, it has deadly consequences. Although,
1: like not that
0: deadly. Not, yeah, I mean that sounds like a dark thing to say. Which again, like people are killed in these things, but. The volume of arms that are hurled <laughs> compared to the number of people killed is actually relatively low. Yeah, and at, Iran could at, do a lot worse. Yeah, that
1: no, I think that's the critical point. If Iran really wants to turn up the temperature, it has many ways of killing a large number of people, and it is not morally above using any of them. From you know, blowing up apartment buildings uh, or Jewish community centers in Argentina. To uh, you know, Hezbollah attacks on the uh, Marine barracks bombing in in you know a- a- Iran knows how to conduct mass casualty events, and if they're you know sort of flying drones at warships that are very capable of defending themselves, by the way, or using a militia to shoot at U.S. forces that can fire back with serious weaponry. Trevor in
0: hardened locations where they take cover, which is what usually happens with a lot of these attacks in Iraq particularly.
1: Exactly. Then this is a decision to escalate in a very limited fashion against the United States rather than to say – uh, launch 10,000 missiles at northern Israel, which they're also perfectly capable of doing. There's a si- it's a signaling mechanism that is we're trying to drag you in but not really because we don't want you actually to get involved in the war except in a kind of symbolic way. But we want to emphasize that you're implicated and we're hitting you because we don't distinguish between you and Israel.
2: So can I can I ask? I feel like I referenced once before in this podcast the idea of kayfabe, which is so in professional wrestling, like you pre- you present a staged performance as if it's real, like with the stories I've and everything. I've never
0: heard that before, but I like. Okay,
2: it. it's 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 a thing. There's a great argument that it explains the Trump presidency. I recommend it. My question is: is this kayfabe, right?
0: Would you explain what a kayfabe? So is essentially,
2: that that Iran is. Acting as if it wants to draw the U.S. in and escalate, but it doesn't actually want to do that. And the U.S. also knows that. So there's a little sort of like staged dance happening that is it is escalatory, but it's not like there's a, an element of performance. I don't – just how do you read that?
0: There's definitely a strong signaling and communications element. But it's actually not quite that they don't want the United States to escalate. It's that they actually benefit in different ways whether the United States escalates or not. The United States – because the escalating is very costly for the United States in all of these environments. Um, In Iraq, when the United States escalates, which the Biden administration has done recently, they've started hitting more targets in Iraq than Syria. Mostly, they limit themselves to Syria. They've hit, uh, I think, prior to October 7th, one target in Iraq in the last few years. Um, The Trump administration did many more. Caused great controversy domestically in Iraq because they're doing this with consent of the Iraqi government because the Iraqi government has ties to Iran. Now, the Iraqi government – doesn't always seem to hate it when this happens because they are also often being attacked by these militia groups. Um, It's a super complicated, messy political situation. But to summarize it very briefly, essentially US military action in Iraq is a third rail politically in in domestic politics in Iraq. So any political leader has to come out and oppose it even if they – in their heart of hearts, don't hate that it's happening. and It causes problems where the United States has been under pressure to wind down its military presence in Iraq. The Biden administration kind of relieved all that pressure when they ended the US combat operations in Iraq at the end of 2021. Still have about 2,500 US troops there essentially advising and training and assisting. But those soldiers are there with the consent of the Iraqi government too and they could feel enough political pressure to rescind that. So there's a cost to escalating in Iraq. Escalating in Syria, just complicates the whole Syria situation. Like Syria is a super, super messy situation. Our clear nearest allies there, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, are seen as a terrorist group by Turkey who is nominally at least another ally and a member of NATO and directly attacks them occasionally and that sometimes we come to their defense by shooting down Turkish drones. Like it's a super messy scenario. Any sort of escalation in Syria complicates things dramatically for the United States. And then in the Red Sea here, the secret is if the United States escalates and it becomes more of a shooting war then shipping is probably going to wind down anyway or it gets way more expensive. All of a sudden, you have to have something that's being discussed now, coordinated maritime escorts by military ships for any time you have shipping going up and, up and down the Red Sea. That's what the United States did in the 80s in the Persian Gulf during the Iran-Iraq. Kuwaiti flag tankers, man. Exactly. And, and something like that could happen again. The problem here: the volume of traffic through the Red Sea, I suspect, is like – dramatically higher and more complicated um, and also undermines Somalia, which has been kind of a success story the last few years where they've really wound down Somali pri- piracy, which is a major threat to the same traffic 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago, I guess maybe leading into about 10 years ago. Um, they've really you know, had Somalia substantially stabilized in a lot of ways, wound down pirate operations and now it's coming from the other side of the Red Sea, um, from Yemen uh, in a much more coordinated, dangerous fashion. So – Iran thinks it can get away with a lot and if the United States responds, then it's short-term cost. What it doesn't think the United States will ultimately do is invade Yemen, invade, bomb Tehran, send ground troops back into Iraq or dramatically increase its military commitment to Syria. And they're right. They're not going to do any of those things. And so there's limits to what it can do.
1: I think there's another difference between this and KFAB, which is in kfab everybody knows what's going to happen, right? And yeah. And here – That's a good this point. This is real in the sense that like – They really are shooting at U.S. forces and when you shoot at U.S. forces, U.S. forces are going to shoot back and so you may mean it as a kind of kayfabe. You may mean it in a more – uh, theatrical way, but you also have to manage the actual escalatory consequences of of what you do.
0: It's like kayfabe if one of them has anchor management problems and a gun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for,
2: for the record, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, kayfabe was added to uh, Merriam-Webster in October Ooh.
0: 2023. Good to know. Wrestling yes. terms breaking into the mainstream. I like to hear it. Quinta, I like actually. Your, I'd be curious about your perspective on this a little bit from like the domestic political perspective, and frankly, from like the perspective of somebody who's not obsessed with regional security <laughs> dynamics. Like to the extent that both Ben and I are uh, to various ways uh, and, and to various degrees. Like, you know, what does this kind of pressure in? What are the pressure points that, th- that it means? Is th- do you sense like broad concerns of the United States actually getting pulled in for a meaningful way, or is this? Kind of fade into the background for those not following events in the region.
2: I mean, maybe it's just me. I mean, and to be clear, I like I'm not a complete dumbo. Like I, I have been following <laughs> events in the region. No, such accusations. no,
0: yeah. <laughs> Agreed.
2: <laughs> but uh, I don't think it's broken through. I mean, I don't. I was looking at the New York Times coverage of the war in Gaza, and it, it's not you know prominently. It's there, but it's not prominent. Um, you know, when I walk past. TVs when people have playing CNN, you know, playing in the Brookings cafeteria. I don't. I haven't seen it on there. It's not part of the social media discourse that people like to get angry about about the war. It just doesn't feel to me like it's become part of the popular American understanding. For whatever reason, I, I don't really know why that is. Um, I guess a memo to the Iranians, you got to step it up if you want to break into the news cycle, apparently, I don't know. But it just, it doesn't feel to me like the conversation which has been so focused on sort of very high altitude arguments about, you know, the meaning of decolonization and what Israel is and how to define anti-Semitism and et cetera and so on and so forth has really been affected by the specifics of what's happening here, which doesn't mean that it couldn't, if it continues and escalates, but it just doesn't feel to me like it's really become part of the conversation, at least in the public mind.
1: I don't. Ben, does that sound right to you? Oh, I think that's exactly right, and it's quite distinct from the reaction in Israel, where it, you know, and I think, you know, arguably the Iranian movements are in some ways directed more at Israel than they are at the United States even though they involve U.S. warships and and U.S. troops. Because if you think about geographically where they're happening, the Red Sea is of course south of Israel and Hezbollah is to the north. That's an Iranian proxy. The Gaza war is on the uh, west coast of Israel and the Iraqi uh, militias that are fighting with U.S. forces are on on the East, albeit several hundred miles, but um uh, and not really within the Israeli consciousness, but if you think about it from an Iranian point of view, they are uh, literally surrounding Israel with armed conflict, albeit against the United States, uh, and that's designed to send a message of Siege and surrounding to Israel, and it does, particularly the stuff in the north, which of course involves rocketing of Israeli northern communities. And, you know, people keep talking, and rightly so, about the number of internally displaced people that there are in Gaza, which is amazing. But the number of internally displaced people in Israel is huge too. And Iran is a big part of the reason for that. So not only are huge communities in the south near Gaza all internally displaced, but the entire north, all, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have moved. And so you know, from an Israeli point of view, the Iranian – every time something goes boom related to Iran – they think about it and I think the Iranians mean them to think about it in terms of this encirclement and uh, that's part of the message that they're sending to us to the US administration and it's also part of the message that they're sending to the Israelis whom they don't really distinguish from, they they really think of the Israelis as an outpost of the United States, the great Satan and the little Satan. I, I
0: think that's alright and you know, part of the I think the equation here is that it's kind Iran has a crying wolf problem a little bit on this because it's been doing this for so long for 20 years and it's baked into the American regional presences mindset. Now, the American responses have changed, right? Before 2018, we didn't see – we hadn't really seen for a couple of years at least airstrikes against Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria uh, and those started getting spiked back up. Um, at that point because of threats against U.S. diplomatic and military but actually mostly diplomatic presences in uh, Iraq at the time uh, and you saw the closing of like Iraq's southern consulate in Basra uh, mostly because of threats uh, against it um, by these sorts of armed groups before the sort of military response. And I don't think that military response is always framed in terms of, of reestablishing deterrence which I think is a stupid, stupid phrase the U.S. government uses but nonetheless, you know, that's kind of a myth because it's like nothing as much is being deterred here. You're interrupting operational capability in some cases um, but – you know the the sheer scale of military action that would be required to like deter anything will be way more substantial and have massive regional consequences. Um, there's just not much you can do against these groups unless you're reinvading Iraq or doing a lot of these other stuff that the United States politically just isn't going to do. What the United States can do is try and tamp down the situation, manage risk, you know, establish hardened positions, take strategic responses, undermine operational capability, patrol with you know Red Sea ships in a way that. The Iranians aren't going to mess with enough, or won't have the capabilities to do, or the Houthis or their proxies, and just try and cabin the risk that way and insulate themselves, and meanwhile pursue their broader political agenda and interests. That's what the United States has more or less done. Like the Trump administration interrupted that; they consciously tried to escalate against the Iranians. I'm I'm very dubious as to whether that worked. I don't think it did. But uh, you know, people can argue about that. Is the Biden administration very much returned to this sort of tack? I will say though that the downside of that is that it's politically hard to say all these attacks are happening against US soldiers, US diplomats even though most of them really are not again having high levels of casualties um, but once that starts getting back in the media again even though again this is a reality actually a lot of people live through for many many years uh, in Iraq and elsewhere you know it, it becomes an it becomes a new political pressure that is is a point of concern well Going from escalation in the Middle East to escalation in the courtroom, uh, uh, let's turn to a little more of a domestic topic but something we've seen in the past few weeks. We saw not one but two major court decisions come down very late in the week last week, very frustratingly late because we ended up reading them uh, on our Friday evenings uh, instead of having lives. Memo to Um, the federal courts,
1: cut with the Friday shit. Yeah, early I mean, in the week,
0: guys. Come just, on, just, just like give us hold something. it till
1: Monday. It's is, is it gonna is it gonna kill you?
0: Exactly. Please, we,
1: we rage hard here at Lawfare.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, or some of us have kids we have to take care of in the evenings, if nothing else. Um, it's. Two fascinating opinions. Um, One, of course, from the district court. I'll start with the first one actually from the D.C. Circuit, I should say. Uh, Three-judge panel, uh, Judge Chief Judge uh, Srinivasan, an Obama appointee, Judge Katzis, a more recent Trump appointee, and uh, Judge Rogers, who is a Clinton administration appointee, uh, who I will know for sake of disclosure that I worked for uh, a few years ago as a law clerk. They issued a panel opinion essentially saying that former President Trump does not get Any sort of categorical immunity by virtue of having acted on January 6th in his capacity as president. I think the suit primarily hinges really on his comments and speeches the morning of January 6th that focused on that set of. Actions, Although maybe not exclusively limited to it, um, particularly after discovery and the, you know they might be have the opportunity to rebuild their case out a little bit. But this is a civil lawsuit for damages um, where Trump – former president Trump had argued that as a former president, his actions were essentially all rendered immune and the panel said essentially no because in making the speech and taking select other actions, you were acting as a candidate. You were not acting as the president and the president has multiple sort of roles and made an effort to distinguish between them. We then saw a very similar decision – Ish At least come down from Judge Chutkin in the criminal trial where former President Trump had made a similarly broad claim of immunity um, by virtue of having been a president from criminal prosecution by special counsel Jack Smith on a variety of conspiracy and similar charges. And the judge said, no, in fact, you are not immune from this. There's no basis for dismissing on the basis of this presidential immunity. Quinnan, let me start with you. You know, what do you make of these decisions and where they're likely to go from here? Obviously, you know, we'll see an appeal in the Chutkin decision almost certainly. I don't know whether we will see a successful appeal of the D.C. Circuit panel decision. Uh, you know, it seems unlikely, it's, given the composition of the panel and the fact those three judges more or less agreed, even though they had little points of disagreement. It seems unlikely to be taken up on bonk and I. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing the Supreme Court would be anxious to get involved in, but who knows exactly, but I kind of doubt it. Although they certainly, you know, Justice Kavanaugh and others have strong feelings about presidential law, uh, so maybe they'll they'll be persuaded in that. You know, where do you think this goes, and and what is the actual relevance of the opinions? What does it tell us about where this legal fight's going to go?
2: Ben and I actually have a piece on this subject on lawfare, so I'm going to crib shamelessly from what we've already written. I think that Chutkin's ruling is definitely the more— uh, rhetorically aggressive, I would say. Um, there's a lot of you know sweeping rhetoric about the rule of law. She gets in some some good zingers about how it shouldn't be hard for presidents to decide not to intentionally commit crimes. Um, and to be clear, I think her her reasoning is solid, but it's definitely a little more in your face. Um, it's sort of simpler in a way because she is responding to a very aggressive argument made by Trump, attempting to extend the civil immunity that the Supreme Court has already recognized for presidents and former presidents for official acts into the criminal context. And Chetkin basically says, you know, nice try. The D.C. Circuit ruling is taking this question of civil immunity and asking, does it specifically apply to this context of January 6th, given that we already know that it exists? So it's it's responding to a much less aggressive argument, and it's responding in a, a more sort of nuanced point-by-point point way, kind of in the way you would expect, I think. Um, and as you say, what the D.C. Circuit essentially does is divide out uh, president acting as a candidate for future office versus acting in his role as the incumbent president and essentially says Trump on January 6th was... Acting in his role as a candidate, he's helpfully made that very easy for us to decide since he actually filed a motion to intervene in a Supreme Court case, the Texas v. Pennsylvania litigation, saying he was doing it as in his personal capacity. So it sort of answers the D.C. Circuit's question for it. What Ben and I essentially argued is that the D.C. Circuit ruling, although it doesn't directly address the same issues in uh, Judge Chutkin's ruling insofar as it's in the civil rather than the criminal context, makes the landscape a lot more difficult for Trump on his appeal of Judge Chutkin's ruling insofar as it kind of sets out a framework for the D.C. Circuit to say even if we accept that some kind of immunity does apply to presidential conduct in the criminal context, we're going to carve out at least some portion of the conduct charge in the indictment. And so I think that that really makes it much more difficult for Trump moving forward. We can also talk about the sort of specific procedural mechanics here, but I think it makes it particularly difficult for him insofar as his goal here is kind of to delay the trial right he's it's going to be even harder for him to get a stay from the dc circuit to to push back the trial date given that one of the criteria for granting a stay is likelihood of success on the merits previously that was just a kind of a giant question mark now i think i would definitely i don't know what the likelihood of success on the merits is but i would mark it significantly down from wherever it was before
1: i mean i think these decisions one of which is surprising, and the other of which is not. the The Chutkin opinion is completely unsurprising. In a, uh, Trump was asking for the recognition of a very novel, very aggressive expansion of the idea of presidential immunity into a. Space that really would quite literally put the president above the criminal law and and extend that until he 's the form into his former presidency the d c circuit opinion by contrast I think is quite surprising if you had asked ten analysts you'd told them the identity of this panel and you'd told them the issue, I think you would not have had. Two of those analysts who suspect who would have predicted unanimity on the question, and the the opinion is functionally unanimous on on the relevant issues, although there are some uh, nits that get picked around the edges, but the, the the core of the opinion is unanimous, and it is uh, devastating for Trump, in my view. So what it means is that. You do – if you're trying to figure out whether the president is immune, you do a kind of situational analysis of what role he was acting in and yeah, the tie goes to the president. If it's partly presidential and partly personal, you you sweep it in as immune but – If you can say, hey, look, he looks like a candidate here, looks more like a campaign speech than the State of the Union, he's not immune. and That's a big change in the law of presidential immunity where previously the only situation that we've ever found a president not immune is the Paula Jones litigation, which was categorically blocked out of immunity because the conduct – the alleged sexual uh, misconduct toward Paula Jones took place before Bill Clinton was president right so he could it couldn't have been in his presidential capacity because he wasn't president and so i think this is a a very dangerous ruling for trump it it creates number 1 I think it's very unlikely to – it's very likely to be stable. Uh, the D.C. Circuit's not going to revisit it for the reason Scott described. And I don't think the – if – you know, any opinion that you can get Greg Katzis and uh, Sri Sreenivasan and Judith Rogers on at the D.C. Circuit is in my view very likely to have legs at the Supreme Court. Uh, and then the, the, the final aspect that I think makes it really dangerous for Trump is that even if Chutkin gets reversed, even if the D.C. Circuit, which is not going to happen, or the Supreme Court were to say, yeah, there is such a thing as presidential immunity. Under this view of presidential immunity, a lot of the acts in the indictment would be fine to indict him for because there're acts in his personal capacity as candidate not in his official capacity as president so i think it's a it's a surprisingly important opinion it's powerful in its unanimity as well as in its reasoning and it's likely to have big consequences and longevity
0: so let me ask you this in terms of the relationship between these two Civil immunity and criminal immunity not the same thing. Not the same thing. Worth bearing in mind. Which people there's a reason it'd be reasonable for people to think they might relate to each other, but they're actually usually quite distinct. And that makes me query what we can draw, if anything, from the uh, Blasting Game dis- opinion, the civil opinion, in terms of what the DC how the DC Circuit, assuming it's a similar panel, and obviously it might not be, but um, if it has to go down bank it'll go on bank and we'll get the basically same treatment will view the criminal question. You know, this line they draw between official role and private role, between office seeker and office holder, which is a bad way to clarify it actually because office seeker is not the whole scope of what presidents – even a political capacity. Like they're also the leaders of their parties. They're fundraisers for other candidates, things like that. Um, But setting all that aside, here it worked reasonably well. Um, but a big part of the reason it works so well is because it's a limited set of conduct. You're really asking to evaluate. Again, the, the civil suit really hangs a lot on that speech on January 6th and um, in incitement, right? So you know, are we going to see a similar framework or lens applied to the conduct in the January 6th criminal case, which is much broader? I mean when you read that indictment. It covers all sorts of things, former President Trump did, which are much muddier. And particularly if it's a if the assumption, which you know Judge Kavanaugh does say in his majority opinion, you know ties go to the president. You know, does that mean it's going to be a muddier outcome, or do we just not get there because, as Judge Shetkin ruled, like it's
1: just a former president issue? We don't have to reach all this. Okay, so here's here's first of all the answer to all of those questions is we don't know. But I think here's what you can fairly confidently assume: number one, Trump will appeal this and he this chutkan ruling and he gets an immediate appeal of it on for uh, uh obscure reasons that we don't have to go into <laughs> but he gets an interlocutory appeal here so the first question is will the dc circuit having just ruled that civil immunity is narrower than lots of people like us thought then turn around and say, but actually the same immunity applies in the criminal context. That seems improbable to me, that if you were looking to expand the immunity of former presidents, you probably wouldn't start by narrowing it. The second thing is that Trump to some extent answers the question that you pose of would the immunity be the same in the criminal context? Because the immunity he was asking Judge Con- uh, Judge Chutkin to recognize was Fitzgerald immunity. That is the same immunity that applies in the in in the civil context. So I suppose it's possible that the the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court could recognize some other immunity. In which case, they would just be you know pulling it out of the air, and they can make up whatever they want. But if they give Trump what he wants, it is the same immunity that applies in the civil context and thus you would have to go through that very muddy exercise that you describe. And I think it would be a fact by alleged fact exercise in the indictment of figuring out which uh, survives. But I think a lot of the indictment would arguably survive at least a motion to dismiss.
2: Yeah, and to be clear, so Srinivasan says uh, – he he describes this kind of inquiry as an objective context-specific ab- assessment, um, and it is not supposed to focus on the content of what the president says, but it can focus on the, the content of what the president says some of the time. Uh, so it's there's a little bit of clear as mud here, although I think the court is honest about that and essentially says, look, you know, sometimes this is going to be really hard – That doesn't mean that it's not worth attempting to draw this line. And in this instance, with the in the specifics of the Plassingham case, this is just very obviously on one side of the line. But I think that, you know, if you look at the indictment, which I in full disclosure have not had time to go through after reading the Blassingham opinion, there's there's stuff in there that's definitely questionable. So one One of the components of the conspiracy that Ben and I have been talking about that might get thrown out is, for example, the charges that involve Trump's effort to install Jeffrey Clark as head of the Justice Department. That, you know, you can argue that it's an official act in the same way that Trump firing Comey as FBI director uh, was arguably an official act. On the other hand, something like calling Brad Raffensperger and demanding that he find 11,000 votes, I think under the framework that Trinvasan sets out here it's a lot harder to argue that that's an official act. And those are maybe kind of the poles, right, the extremes. I think there's probably a lot of muddy space in between, but it is far from obvious to me that reading, if you kind of port the D.C. Circuit's analysis in them over to the criminal context, that the indictment would not hold up. It seems to me that Smith
1: has a pretty good shot. Moral of the story, guys, if you're going to incite a crowd to revolt, do it at the State of the Union. That way, that way you're immune at least from civil liability. Yeah.
0: you know, I, I do wonder whether actually this – thinking this through helps us maybe answer a little bit of a mystery we've had about Jack Smith's strategy in the January 6th case where Tons of facts are alleged and we've seen people write up lengthy, lengthy, hundreds of pages of lists listicles of all the different criminal charges President Trump could have been charged under, many of which are, are colorable, at least uh, plausible. But it's always saw Jack Smith focus on four big charges, right? Like two kind of very broad obstruction charges and two different conspiracy charges. I think it was three conspiracies. I thought it was I thought it was two obstruction two conspiracy. but regardless, some some combination of those. I got to go back. This is
2: when you need the count from Sesame Street. Yes,
0: exactly, exactly. But but it's interesting because all of those hinge on broad fact patterns, not specific facts. So even if you were to say President Trump is immune to substantially some of these, if you were to bring in a Blasting Game type analysis where you do have to analyze and that. I think there might be some argument to this that you actually should be doing this even for former presidents, right? That certain acts have to be immune um, because they are so inherent to the presidency and the role of the government. You can drop a lot of those facts. You just need one overt act for conspiracy – at least for the conspiracy charges and both of the – both or one of the obstruction charges, whichever one it was, is – pretty broadly construed. It's basically it's obstructing a proceeding. So you only need to have participated one part of the obstruction and had that intent. And that explains a lot about how Jack Smiths approaching this case is you're painting with such a broad picture. And when you're talking about conspiracy, it's the intent. It's the mens rea. It's the coordination. But you only need one overt act. And that means it can be an overt act. As you're not immune for that, that gets you in the conspiracy door, I think.
1: I think that's right. And I think it is, it is very hard. If, if this is stable law, It is very hard for me to see how the indictment against Trump doesn't proceed. And it is also hard for me to see how it doesn't proceed on something like the timetable that Judge Chutkin has laid out, which is to say a March trial.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, on on that note, it's uh, worth noting that NBC had a, a story that jury questionnaires were sent out in D.C. that don't look unlike what you would expect a jury questionnaire to look like for the Trump case.
0: Awesome, Love it. Love it. Well, folks, that is the end of our time together this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: I have a update in the federal case against my former senator, Bob Menendez, former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, who has, of course, been indicted on a variety of corruption (laughs) charges. I can't even say that without laughing. Uh, NBC has a story that has to do with the gold bars, which you, dear listener, may recall the FBI says that it found in a monogrammed Senate jacket in Menendez's New Jersey home uh, and which feature in the allegations against him uh, regarding his allegedly accepting money and favors in order for favors for the Egyptian government. It appears, according to the NBC story, that the so gold bars, I have now learned, have like little serial numbers on them so they can be identified. One of the businessmen who is identified in the indictment as being part of this scheme apparently reported those gold bars missing in 2013 and had to sign for them and identify them by the serial numbers when they were returned to him. Uh, So they are tied to him in the public record, Uh, meaning that the, the gold bars that were found in Menendez's jacket have been identified as definitely the same gold bars as were previously owned by this businessman who features in the indictment, Fred Daibes. Moral of the story, if you're going to use gold bars to potentially bribe someone, don't use ones that have the serial number that you've identified as yours on them.
1: Melt
0: them down first. I will say I believe he had cash in the jacket of his windbreaker. That oh, was excuse me. I'm sorry. I know that's only because if he had gold bars in there, that's, that's I want to know what brand the, <laughs> the man is using <laughs> and what this jacket is made out of because that is impenetrable. That's amazing.
1: Hero. Um, I love hey, that man. Whether he or George Santos is the, the, the true star of the hundred and whatever Congress, <laughs> um, I, I have not decided yet, but, but they are near and dear to my heart. Absolutely.
0: Well, for my object lesson, it's music time again. Uh, as I went to amazing concert last night at a new venue for D.C. folks that I want to recommend folks check out, that's the Atlantis. It's the tiny, weird venue that's behind the 930 Club that's made to look like the old 930 Club that used to be down on 9th, I think, back well before my time. It is awesomely intimate. I saw Lydia Lovelace, who is an amazing, awesome uh, rock artist, country-ish artist, uh, that folks should check out as well. There last night, awesome show. You're like 10 feet from... The band for the entire show, which is amazing at a venue these days. Like it's hard to find venues that small uh, and they still have great acts come through. Um, so definitely check that out. But I know most people can't do that. And Lizzie Loveless isn't holiday seasoned and it is the month of December when I only do holiday seasoned object lessons. So I have a second bonus object lesson uh, and that will be my music object lesson for the holiday season. I'm running out of some of my favorite Christmas albums. I shared a lot of them already in the last few years as our third holiday season. But I'm going to break one out that's my wife's favorite, and I do like it a great deal. It's Ingrid Michelson's Song for the Season, a Double Edition. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I do like it as much as I do, but I do really like it. You know, hip-ish singer-songwriter Ingrid Michelson uh, of yesteryear. Um, she actually does a live holiday show she tours on that I saw at the Kennedy Center maybe two years ago. It was quite enjoyable, great family fun. Um, but specifically, I will say she has one song um, that's not a cover. I think it's her original song called Happy, Happy Christmas. That is heartbreaking because it's, I think, if you reading between the lines, it's either about a Christmas after bad breakup or Christmas after somebody passes away. But it is very melancholy and gets me. And we turn on this album every day at night when we're playing dinner. And about halfway through my entree, I start tearing up when the song comes on. Um, So if you want to have a nice melancholy Christmas, which we all need on occasion every year, um, check out Happy Happy Christmas. You know, and I'm looking forward to other sharing other holiday season themed object lessons in the weeks to come. As I desperately scramble to find enough, because uh, I'm running low at this point, <laughs> but that's okay. Ben, what do you have to bring us home this week?
1: Well, I have an awesome object lesson to bring us home. Except that since you mention uh, holiday themed music uh, object lessons, I have to I have to pause to give a bonus object lesson. Love My it. wife bought us tickets to a show at the National Cathedral put on by none other than the Embassy of Romania of uh, uh, the Romanian Madrigal Choir, um, which performs in 19th century uh, dresses and collars and, you know, ruffs and um, is quite spectacular – Uh, I think we were some of the very few (laughs) non-Romanians in the audience, and it was uh, simply delightful to sit in the National Cathedral and listen to uh, Romanian and non-Romanian madrigals as well as some modern uh, Christmas music sung by uh, a a truly wonderful uh, uh, choir from Romania, all of which is not my object lesson, but I just had to pick up from Scott's. Uh, uh, theme. Uh, I don't usually log roll for uh, my uh, non-lawfare products on uh, rational security or on lawfare stuff. But I want to mention uh, that if you are into either the Tanya Chutkin opinion or the DC Circuit opinion, you might be interested in a new feature that we rolled out yesterday on Dog Shirt Daily. Which involves readings in audio form of major court opinions and briefs in the Trump trials, both in uh, uh, Washington and in Mar a Lago. The um, uh, reader is the uh, anonymous at NATSEC JD, who is uh, going to be reading all you know, as many briefs as she can get her voice around without losing it. And we started with the D.C. Circuit opinion last night. We're going to do the Tanya Chutkin opinion next. Uh, And it's all running on my little podcast, Read With Me, uh, which you can get through Dog Shirt Daily. So check it out. Uh, If it works, if people really like it, maybe we'll move it over to Lawfare. Um, But for now, it is a kind of experimental – audio version so you can read the briefs while driving to work or uh, while, you know, on your run or in the shower or whatever.
0: Or at one and a half speed, no less, which is the real perk. Excellent. Well, with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But remember that Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, or X, at R-E-T-L Security. And be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast. Among other special benefits, for details, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest, Benjamin Wittes... I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.
1: Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage.